me as we seek God again in prayer. Father in heaven, we pray that as we have heard your word read, that just as real as that was to our ears, so would the presence of your Holy Spirit be to us in this moment. We pray that he would be gathered here in our midst and that you would be pleased to pour him out to us in his fullness, that your word would be applied to our hearts, our hearts open to see the glory of Jesus and to repent and to believe. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Our passage this morning uses a word in verse 10 that is probably familiar to you, whether from church or just from uh, growing up in this culture, and that is the word glory. So the word glory is a word that comes from the Bible that, that has found its way into the course of everyday conversation. We even make movies titled Glory, right? 1989 Denzel Washington film. We, we even, it's used in the title of some of the most famous songs. If you're, I might date myself here a little bit, but uh, Peter Cetera's The Glory of Love, the theme song of Karate Kid 2. Or of that same uh, generation, you have Bon Jovi's, right? Blaze of Glory. And then perhaps the best, Bruce Springsteen's Glory Days, right? But we often use it not just in titles of things, but uh, we use it to describe certain moments in life, right? A beautiful sunset, a bride walking down the aisle on her wedding day, a vista. We would describe these things as glorious. And so we use this term in our everyday conversation in ways similar to the way the Bible uses it. Because when we use it, we typically are referring to something that is superior or of a different class. That's usually the way we use the word glory. And that's true of the way the Bible talks about glory. It refers to something, in the Bible's case, someone, God himself, who is of a class of his own. He is glorious. In fact, the Bible, the, the word used for glory in the Old Testament was the same Hebrew word for heavy. This idea that God has a weightiness about him. And that's the way we sort of use it, right? That things have a certain substance, such a gravity to them that we describe them as glorious. You know, this past week I was with my family. We went on spring break trip to Washington, D.C. And we got to tour the White House for the first time. And as you're walking down the hallways of the White House, you see the portraits on the wall of the first ladies and the past occupants of that residence. And then you start, it comes, it starts to hit you as they tell you the stories of what happened in this room and that room of who has walked these hallways and what all has transpired in the course of this nation's history in this place. And it was interesting because one of the emotions that I was not expecting but came to me in that moment was inferiority. <laughs> that here I was walking this place that many American men have lived and served, and I, I realized that I just wasn't like them. They were really good people. <laughs> that would never be a Teddy Roosevelt. That would never be an Abraham Lincoln. That they were of a different class. They were of a different nature of human somehow than I was. They possessed a certain glory, at least in that office. 
to what they were doing. And you have this moments in life too where you feel like that, where you feel like you've come across people, moments and places where they possess a certain glory and you feel like you lack it. And of course, that happens in the Bible too as we read it. In fact, you don't even have to read the Bible to have an instinct about you that there is a God and that He is by nature glorious and that you by nature do not possess that same kind of glory. That you, or to put it in the words of Paul, Romans 3.23, that you fall short of the glory. That you fall short of the glory of God. That we have this instinct, Psalm 19.1 tells us, you don't have to read the Bible to, to know this, that the heavens declare the glory of God. That every day when we're walking this earth, we're walking His hallways. And it becomes apparent quickly, without even having to open the pages of Scripture, that He is glorious and that we are not as glorious. And so there is this gap where we realize we don't measure up. There's this gap between us and God. And so throughout the history of human civilization, religions have been invented and created to try to make up that gap. What what are we to do? He is glorious. We are not. And so you have religions like Judaism and Islam, which teach that, well, if we just do the right things over and over again, He will accept us into His glory. If we pray the right prayers, make the right pilgrimages, do these purification rituals, we will be accepted into His glory. Or even that if you just go through the cycle the right number of times and, and get things right as you go through the cycle of death and rebirth, then you will ultimately be accepted into glory. Or even the religion of secular humanism in America that tries to bridge the gap between our glory and God's glory by just getting rid of God Himself. That solves the problem. There's no gap. But into that, into human history, comes the announcement that we heard this morning from Hebrews 2. And that is Christianity, the Christian faith, is not so much a prescription of here's what you should do to enter into glory, but it's an announcement that God Himself has come into history to bring you to glory. That this is what sets the Christian faith apart from all other religions. That it's not trying to pave a a formula out for you to show you what you need to be doing, but rather the Christian faith is an announcement of what God has come, of what God is doing to bring you into glory. That phrase, bringing many sons and daughters to glory, the, the word there, bring, that that's the same word used in the New Testament to describe what a human does to an animal. That it goes and takes hold of an animal and brings it to a destination. It was described when Jesus told uh, in his own passion to go and bring the donkey here. To go get that animal and bring it here. It's the same word. It's, it describes what humans do. We go and lay hold of animals to get them to go to the water or wherever we want them to go. It's that kind of sense that the Bible says Jesus has come to bring us to glory. That this is what the Christian faith is about. That it's about the God who's come, the God who has come to us through His Son Christ Jesus, who's grabbed hold of us and has promised to bring us to glory.
that God himself is now making up the gap between us and glory by his own sacrifice, his own obedience, as we're going to see this morning. So that if, if this is the mission of Christ to bring many sons and daughters to glory, then the question we're going to consider this morning is, well, what kind of people is he going to bring? It says sons and daughters as a general term, but what can we learn from this passage about the kind of people Jesus is going to bring to glory? And there's just two things I want you to focus on, and that is that in this passage we're told that Christ comes for sinners, and that second, he comes for many. He comes for sinners, and he comes for many of them. So, first of all, I said there, he comes for sinners. This comes out in verse 17, where it says, He had to be made like them in every respect, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest to make atonement for the sins of the people. God himself recognizes that the people that he sent his son for are not people who measure up. Christ did not come for people who qualify for glory. Christ did not come for people who measured up and thus deserved glory. But as it says there, he came for people who had real and actual sins. Real and actual sins that required atonement, or if you have certain versions of the Bible, it may say propitiation. That's the kind of people that Christ had to come for. In fact, uh, you know, you may know this, the, the word for sin in the New Testament is a word that, that means miss the mark. You don't measure up. Those are the kinds of people, people who are not hitting the mark, people who are not measuring up. The Bible describes those people as sinners, is the term most often used. Those are the kind of people that Christ had to come for. He had to come for sinners. It says in verse 17 that he had to come and make atonement for them. That word might not mean as much, in, that's not a word we use regularly in our vocabulary. Uh, or the word propitiation, but it simply means that Christ had to come to offer a sacrifice to satisfy God's wrath. That God, God is glorious, and He is angered when we exchange His glory for something else, when we try to substitute His glory, or when we violate His glorious standards and His holiness. And so to satisfy the anger of God... Jesus Christ has to come and make atonement. He has to satisfy by way of sacrifice for the sins of the people. And of course, he does that by offering himself on the cross. He makes atonement for sinners. But it's not just atonement that's talked about here. If you, if you look, it's also we're told that Christ comes for sinners not just to atone for them, but to adopt them into God's family. If you... If you went back through and read this passage and, and just noted or highlighted the number of times a, fam, a family re, relational term is used, you'd be surprised at how often. Even the phrase, bring many sons and daughters to glory. That notice it also goes on to say in verse 11, he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Verse 12 and 13 I will tell of your name to my brothers, verse 13, and behold, I and the children that God has given me is how he refers to us. Verse 14, therefore the children share in flesh and blood and so forth. 
So the point here is that it's not just that Jesus came for sinners so that God would no longer be angry at them, though that is true. But it says that Jesus had to come for sinners so that he could bring them into God's family. It's one thing for God not to be angry with you. It's another thing entirely different and even better for to be able to know with certainty that you are his son or that you are his daughter. You know, if I, I am, am a resident of the citizen of the state of Georgia on the other side of Walker County, uh, and you know what I have to do to stay in good standing with the state of Georgia? I have to, first and foremost, pay my taxes, which this time of year is a reminder of. <laughs> they had to pay my taxes, had to meet my financial obligations to the state of Georgia, and I, I have to keep their laws, whatever their laws might be, right? And as long as I do those two things, I know that the state of Georgia probably doesn't have a right to come knocking on my door. That as long as I've paid my taxes and kept the laws, that I'm in good standing with the state of Georgia. And I hope you all do those things. But, but do you know what I have to do to be in good standing with Larry Jones of Birmingham, Alabama? That's my father. With Larry Jones of Birmingham, Alabama, is I, to maintain my standing with him, I, I have to do absolutely nothing. Then, in other words, it doesn't matter if I fail to pay my taxes. It doesn't matter even if I break the law because the record is always going to show that I am the son of Larry Jones. Then nothing can change that fact. That it's set forever. That it's set in the record. It is law that I am the son of Larry Jones and I can't do anything. And sometimes maybe he regrets that. <laughs> I've given him many reasons to regret that at times. That he... He will always be my father, and I will always be his son. And that's, that's the truth that the writer to the Hebrews is trying to get at here. It's, it's not just that, okay, you're in good standing, keep your good standing, but rather it's you are his son, you are his daughter in Christ, and nothing can ever change that. And in fact, even when you give Christ reason to be ashamed of you, perhaps, by your sibling behavior, it gives us the good news in verse 11. He is not ashamed to call you his brother and sister. He's not ashamed. He's the high priest sitting at the right hand of God. And he's not ashamed to remind the father, this is your child, this is my brother. This is your child, this is your daughter, this is my sister. And he's not ashamed of you. And he's proud and boasts of you before the Father so that the Father would continue to show you all the favor that he shows Christ. So Christ comes for sinners to provide them atonement. He comes for sinners to provide them adoption into God's family. But there's one more thing we're told he provides, and that's assistance. The, one of the most commonly used verbs at the end of this passage is the verb help. It's used three times that it says that he can't be made like them in every respect. Uh, verse 16, going back one verse, he helps the offspring of Abraham. He becomes made like them. And then in verse 18, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Notice that in this passage, it doesn't just say that Christ did things in the past for you so that you can have a future in God's glory, though that's true. But it also says that Christ is doing something now for you in the present tense. 
that right now He is able to help you. He is able to help you because He has been tempted and He is able to help you when you are being tempted. Notice, uh, this, this may, don't let it get past you here, Jesus Christ was really tempted. He was really tempted to do certain things, to want things He shouldn't want, to do things He shouldn't want to do, at, or even at times that it wasn't appropriate to do them. He, he was really tempted. There's nothing sinful about being tempted. Jesus Christ was without sin. Hebrews 4 will even say that. He was tempted in every way that we are yet without sin. There's nothing sinful about being tempted, and Jesus knows what it's like when you are being tempted. He knows what it's like to have something put in front of you and to have to make a choice whether to desire it and pursue it or not. And because He knows what that feeling is like, He can help you, it says. Because He knows what it's like not only to face temptation, but He knows, thankfully, what it's like to triumph over temptation, to resist the devil so that He would flee. He comes to help those who are being tempted. So He comes to provide us assistance, adoption, and atonement. But Jesus Christ, it says here, not only came for sinners, but there's actually a word I want us to focus on here. And that was the second point I wanted to get at, that Christ came not only for sinners, but we're told in verse 10 that He came for many. He came for many sons and daughters to bring to glory. You know, if you ever thought about that, there's so many words like this in the Bible where in some ways it's a throwaway word. In other words, it's a word that you probably could read this passage 10 times and that word would never come into focus for you. The word many that's used there as a modifier. I mean, it seems like, you know, the the Bible could have obviously left a modifier out altogether and said he came to bring sons and daughters to glory. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says he came to bring many sons and daughters to glory. And we believe that every word of God is breathed by His Spirit through the pen of every good work. So why did God make a point to tell us how many people that He was going to bring to glory? Well, it's, it's important, I believe, uh, on many levels. But I, I want you to think about it like this. I'm going to say something that may challenge your theological categories because it challenged my theological categories. I'm an ordained... PCA minister, that's about as Calvinistic of a credential that you can get uh, in the United States. Uh, But think about it like this. At the end of human history, the number of those who have been saved will outnumber those who have not been saved. Just sit with that for a moment. Will the number of those who have been saved outnumber those who have not been saved. Now, there's a reason the Bible gives as to why we would think that the number of the saved will outnumber those who are not saved. I'll give you some examples. Genesis 12 through 15, when God came to Abraham, the patriarch of God's people, and made his initial covenant with him, remember what he said to him in Genesis 12 to 15? I will make you exceedingly great. And then he gave him two illustrations. I will make your, your offspring, the children of God, 
to be like the sands of the sea and the stars in the sky. And then we move forward in the Bible to the parables of Jesus. And in the parables, Jesus says that the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed, right? That when planted, it starts off in this very small, overlooked fashion. But that over time, it becomes not just a large tree, but the largest of all the trees. And the birds of the air come and find their shade in it. And then even at the end of the Bible in Revelation, there's a few times in Revelation where it describes the number of occupants of heaven as innumerable. Innumerable. Too many to number, it says. I was challenged by this because I like to read church historians and if the Bible is not enough for you in this testimony, uh, it has been the majority view of Reformed theologians throughout history. John Calvin, Charles Hodge, B.B. Warfield, William Shedd, even Robert Louis Dabney all believe that the number of the saved at the end of human history would exceed the number of those who had not been saved. And it bothered me when I first read and encountered that. Because, and I think, and maybe it does for you, and maybe, by the way, you have some biblical texts that come to mind that make you, what about this, what about that, and we'll get, get to this some other time. But maybe why the reason it bothers us is because we look around our own culture and experience, our own life experience, and we say, well, boss man, that just ain't happening. <laughs> that's just not happening. That's not what I'm seeing. And I would say, you're probably right. But... If you look around the world stage and the, the movement of the church globally, it is the case. In other words, if you went to China, India, uh, uh, if you went to Brazil, 100 years ago, 500 years ago, the number of those who knew Christ then to those who worship and gather in His name today is exponentially greater today than it would have been even 100 years ago. The, the, the numbers are deeply encouraging and powerful. But maybe there's another reason that resists us from embracing that kind of proposition, that the number of the saved will exceed the number of the unsaved. And that is because maybe we just underestimate the, the lavishness of God's mercy. That God is not sparing in His mercy, and He does not have scarce inventory when it comes to grace. He wants to save many. He wants to see many come into His kingdom. In fact, another parable that speaks to this is where Jesus tells uh, in the parable to go out into the highways and the byways and just grab people. Come on, bring them into the banquet. That Jesus longs to see many sons and daughters brought to glory. And so I hope that gives you encouragement this morning. I hope it encourages you maybe about people you know. That God, as you think about people in your own life, that you think for whatever reason are beyond the reach or scope of God's mercy, that you can read this passage this morning and be encouraged that God intends to bring many sons and daughters to glory, that He is lavish in His mercy, and that don't forget the power of His gospel to do what He says it can do, that His gospel is powerful enough to save the foremost of sinners, Paul, 1 Timothy 1.15. If it can save him, it can save anyone. And so I hope not only encourage you about people you know, but I hope it would encourage us to also 
share that gospel. <laughs> that we need to be reminded that God has many sons and daughters that He longs to see brought to glory, and that the way He does that is through us, bearing that message to others. And we need to believe that no matter who, we, we don't qualify people for glory. We don't qualify, we don't uh, do uh, pre-qualification like we do on a home loan <laughs> uh, for peoples to get into glory, but rather our commission is to simply share that message of the gospel, to come and make this announcement to people that by the sacrifice and obedience of Christ, we are brought to glory by faith in His name. That that gospel message, God says, is powerful enough to save, and that He is merciful enough to save even those that we might think are beyond the scope of salvation. I mentioned earlier, I love church history, and one of probably one of my favorite people from American church history to study and read is a Presbyterian pastor from the 17, late 1700s, early 1800s, named Archibald Alexander. Why don't we name people Archibald anymore? It really was a great name. <laughs> uh, Archibald Alexander pastored and founded what's, what's now known as Princeton Seminary. But, but he did not grow up a Christian. He grew up in Christian circles, but he didn't grow up a Christian. And this came out in a conversation he had as a teenager with a local pastor, uh, Pastor Mitchell. He was having this conversation with Pastor Mitchell about you know, I'm not a Christian. And he says, he says, I look around at all my friends and they're having these dramatic conversions. And he said, I'm just not. I'm just not having a dramatic conversion like my friends. And then he confessed to the pastor and he says, and even when I look at my own life and my own behavior, the choices I've made, he's like, I know I'm not a Christian. <laughs> uh, and, and so he despaired to the pastor that he would ever be able to be a Christian because of those things. He wasn't having dramatic experiences, and his own life was not becoming of a Christian. And Dr. Mitchell told him to stop looking at his own life, and he said to stop looking around at your friends, and he said, just look to Jesus Christ. That this is your problem, Archibald. You're, you're comparing, you're looking inward, and that's keeping you from having hope. You're looking around you, and that's keeping you from having hope. What you need to do is look to Jesus Christ and to have hope in Him. And Archibald Alexander, looking back on that experience, says, I have never before understood the freeness of salvation, but had always been striving to bring something in my hand or to prepare myself for receiving Christ. And so this morning, my encouragement to you would be the same that was given to Archibald Alexander. And that is, as you think about God's glory, as you think about the hope of glory, and as you realize you don't measure up to glory, don't look around to compare yourself to others to see if you'll measure up to glory. And don't look within to see if you will measure up to glory, but rather look to Jesus that He is our only hope of glory, that He has done everything by His life, His death, and His resurrection to remove the obstacles that stand between us and glory. And even now, when we do things as Christians that fall short of the glory of God, we need to be reminded we have a merciful and faithful high priest who's still not ashamed 
to call us his brothers and sisters and to parade us in front of the Father. And so this morning, we need to be reminded we are not glorious in and of ourselves, but rather by faith in Jesus. We belong to him, and he is in the process of bringing us along with many other sons and daughters to glory. And so we live by faith in Him, and even now as we are tempted, we look to Him because He is able to help us even as we are being tempted. Don't look at your sin. Don't look at your friends. Don't look at anything else. Look to Jesus and have hope of glory. Pray with me. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You for this good news We thank you that in Christ Jesus, we can have the hope of glory. And we pray, Father, it's not for us to to try to ponder the number of those that will be with us in glory. But we pray that you would give us an expanded view this morning. That we will be gathered on that day with many sons and daughters. And we pray that that would give us a certain boldness in our own gospel witness, and we pray it would give us comfort and hope as we see people in our lives still in need of that saving message. And Father, we pray, help us to believe that all atonement has been accomplished, that we are your children, and that we can call upon Christ for help even now in our own temptations. Give us this hope, and we pray, bring us to glory through your Son, Christ Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.